Hi, and welcome back to another year of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host, Patrick Polk, and today's guest is Chris Bedingfield, Principal and Portfolio Manager at Key Global Investors. After starting his career as an equity analyst, with a special focus on real estate investment trusts, or REITs as they're more commonly known, Chris came to prominence after issuing a rare sell recommendation on Centro Property Group in 2005, just two years before its infamous collapse. By the time the global financial crisis rolled around, Chris was Director of Real Estate Banking at Credit Suisse. No doubt an interesting vantage point from which to watch the crash. In 2014, he founded Key Global Investors along with Justin Blais, which invests in listed real estate securities around the developed world. In this episode, we discuss what went wrong for Australian REITs in the GFC and how they've changed today. He offers a unique perspective on housing affordability, and he explains why consumers and households are looking stronger than ever, along with the potential implications for markets and economies. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Good to be finally chatting with you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. When I think of you, I always think back to uh, 2018, I think it was, when you presented at Livewire Live for us and you told a great story about Monopoly and how it affected the, or, or how it was relevant to the <laughs> to the, the housing, uh, sorry, the, the property market. It was really, really great. So I hope you've got some more yeah. uh, wonderful anecdotes to tell us today. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a bit, 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 bit of a favourite. Back in 2005, you were working as an equities analyst. You wrote a sell report on Centro property. For people who haven't been around the market for a while, they might not remember Centro property, um, but a couple of years later, it collapsed, as I'm sure you're <laughs> well and truly aware. Um, I'm curious to know what did you see at the time that made you issue that recommendation? Because, you know, sell recommendations aren't actually all that common on equity desks. No, I wasn't particularly popular there for a while, particularly with the company. Um, I guess it really started almost back to my uni days in that, you know, I came through uni in the late 80s, early 1990s. And you know, one of the most spectacular crashes back then was a company called Adelaide Steamship, AdSteam as it was known. And um, and I did like quite a lot of work on it when I was at uni, understanding exactly what was going on there. And that company basically collapsed because it was, you know, had too much leverage. But a lot of the leverage was hidden through um, uh, sort of joint ventures or, or equity interests. And, you know, when, when I was looking at Centro, uh, particularly in the early 2000s, they were doing a lot of things that were very similar. So they had a model where they would buy they'd buy a piece of real estate, say worth $100, and they would put maybe $40 of debt against it. 
And then they would sell the $60 of equity to, to investors in the form of a syndicate and they'd collect fees on it. They would take a small equity interest. So of the $60, they might take $10 of that and then they'd sell $50 of it you know, to third-party investors and they'd collect fees. And it was a pretty, it was a sensible business model, but essentially they, they had these very strong growth ambitions and they started buying lots and lots of assets, far too many assets than what investor appetite really you know, was there for. So as the business model evolved, what they ended up doing was they were buying yeah, uh, assets, say, for $100. And instead of putting $40 of debt against them, they you know, started putting $50 of debt and $60, $65, whatever the banks let them get away with. There was less equity to sell. But even then, there wasn't enough appetite for all of the equity they were trying to sell. So then they started to take more and more um, equity for themselves. And to keep it off balance sheet, they had to they had to have forty nine point nine percent of the equity. I mean, all this is getting a little bit technical, but essentially, what they ended up doing was just having an enormous pile of debt that was sitting off balance sheet. And uh, they even got so brazen that they were taking seventy eighty percent of the equity and calling it non voting equity, <laughs> so that the auditors would would allow them to keep all of that debt off the balance sheet. And just recorded as a net investment, which made their balance sheet look pristine, but the underlying balance sheet was just sagging beneath an enormous weight of debt. And then, um, so it was really just understanding the accounting behind it and looking through all the structures. We were reading all of the PDA, they were issuing PDSs for these syndicates. There were errors in the PDSs. The company was running too fast. You know, you're making errors in PDSs, simple errors like refer to Section 7 on a, on a PDS and there is no Section 7. Um, you know, you start, you know, if there errors are being made at that level, you know, my experience told me there was going to be errors going to be made elsewhere in the system. And, um, and essentially, uh, and then on top of that, you know, I was working at uh, Deutsche Bank at the time and um, I, was reading, I was ringing our colleagues in the US and they were just, they were scratching their heads at the prices that, that Aussie REITs were paying generally for assets. So I felt like without doing a hell of a lot of work, the assets were being paid by too much. The leverage was too high. Um, the company was running too fast. You could see errors creeping into, you know, some of their documents and disclosures. And um, and just from there, it was like, well, why would you need to be in this company? It all just looked a little bit too hot, too risky. The directors eventually got in trouble uh, from the courts for uh, specifically the issue was classifying uh, long uh, short-term debt as long-term debt. Was that something that was visible to you at the time or did that only become apparent after the fact? So it's it's it really didn't matter. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it was going down anyway. Um the, the the problem they faced was that they had way too much leverage and asset prices were, were starting to fall. And so they were always going to breach covenants at some stage. Uh, they just, they wouldn't, basically what Centro went through in 2007 was what a lot of other REITs went through in a lesser extent. A lot of them survived. They had some pretty awful capital raisings, but the the, the misclassification was a huge error, obviously, but in my opinion, I think the company was going down anyway, irrespective of how that was classified. But obviously, that was that was something that the regulators could could pin on the company. You could, can't pin the company necessarily for 
you know, borrowing too much. Shareholders need to be responsible for those sorts of decisions. So that was something the regulator could pin them on. And um, and I guess that's where the story ended up going. But from an economic and a, a real estate point of view, the company, the company was always doomed. It was just a matter of time. Well, of course, a couple of years later, um, A-REITs got pretty, hit pretty hard during the GFC. You must have had a pretty interesting uh, perspective on it from where you were um, doing investment banking for the industry at Credit Suisse. I imagine you probably had a few desperate <laughs> REITs coming and knocking on your door. What do you think the industry got wrong in that time before the GFC? Oh, that you know, you, you could have a shopping list. Really, um, there was probably you, you, you probably distill it down to maybe you know two or three big issues. I think the first was Centro wasn't alone in terms of leverage. Uh, the sector was using more and more debt. Um, you know, I started in the nineteen early nineteen nineties, and a, and a REIT geared to fifteen to twenty percent was considered to be, you know, the maximum. GPT actually had in their in their constitution that they couldn't be geared more than 20%. And they changed that and they and, and other REITs just, you know, really pushed the leverage uh, quite quite hard. That was the first problem. Second problem was, you know, they were sort of bumping into each other buying assets here in Australia. So they all decided, well, not all, but most of them decided to start buying in foreign markets where they really didn't have a lot of expertise um, you know, so they were sort of like, you know, I hate to say it, but in a lot of instances, they were kind of seen as the dumb money uh, from foreign sellers. And I think the third issue was that, you know, they, they thought about leverage the wrong way. They, they, a lot of the Australian REIT managers thought about leverage as a simple LVR without thinking that the V can fall a long, long, long way. <laughs> so you might wake up one day and feel like your LVRs. 55%, but, you know, six months later, because values are falling quickly, 65 becomes 75, becomes 80 very quickly. Um, and and those and, and they, so they were running too close to the covenants and, and a lot of them weren't running with liquidity. So, uh, you know, a lot of them just didn't have, you know, big lines of credit available for liquidity. Um, they just borrowed what they needed, had very small liquidity, uh, access to liquidity, very short duration on their debt. So there were probably the big three reasons. One being that they they geared too much, two, they structured the debt poorly, um, so they were skating too close to the covenants without any liquidity buffer. And third, you know, they, they just got too aggressive buying offshore at, at what foreigners were seeing were, were crazy, crazy prices. Do you think those issues are all fixed today? Have they, have they learned their lessons from, well, nearly 15 years ago now? Well, I think they've learned those lessons. Um, I think that there's a lot more consideration around the balance sheets. Um, they're still probably on balance. I, you know, when we look across the Australian market, we think on balance, they're probably, you know, a little bit on the high side, but they're, they're not too bad. There's better liquidity. I think most REIT uh, managers now really stick to their knitting. Um, and have sort of trimmed themselves down to being, you know, good at what they do or, or, or try to be best in class at what they do, you know. Um, you do have, obviously, companies like Goodman that are going offshore who have now really do have a terrific track record in, in knowing what they're doing. They know their markets. So we do have those companies going offshore, but they're not, 
you know, as I said before, I, it's not the dumb money. It's it's quite sophisticated guys that know what they're doing. So I think a lot of the a lot of the issues have been have been addressed, and um, not just in Australia, but I think globally as well. We, we've seen the same sort of change in behaviour in markets like the US, where leverage has come down quite a lot, and the sector is um, globally, just domestically and globally, on a much better footing than it was you know, 10, 15 years ago. If you'll forgive me for staying on the topic of Australia for a little bit, I know you're a, a more globally focused investor than that, um, but I'd be curious to get your take on Australian residential property. One of the big kind of, I guess, bugbears of, of most Australians who don't always already own property is affordability. You know, you see it in the in the paper pretty much every week, discussion forums and in polite conversation, <laughs> it's a it's a pretty regular topic. Why do you think Australian residential property is as unaffordable as it is today? It's a really good question, and it's a it's a topic that a lot of people get wrong. Uh, and I'm, we're talking about you know central bankers or regulators and, and economists and government because no one wants to talk about the, the the elephant that's in the room. So it's really easy to point to things like you know, property is unaffordable because interest rates are too low um, or property is unaffordable because we have, you know, favourable tax treatment for, you know, for investments um, or property is, you know, unaffordable because of immigration. And the third one is property is unaffordable because there's huge capital gains tax concessions. So there's two tax concessions. There's capital gains tax concessions. There's negative gearing concessions. And all of those completely and utterly miss the point. Um, firstly, low interest rates does not create a boom in property. Um, it's a complete and utter myth. Um, I can line up any Japanese real estate investor over the last 25 years who can very confidently say that low interest rates has not been particularly a good outcome for Japanese real estate. <laughs> it's been terrible. Japan's been at zero interest rates now. I think this year is officially the 25th year of official cash rate of zero, um, and it's been, a, it's been a miserable asset class to own. Um, and a lot of people will point to that and say, well, yeah, the demographics are not great in Japan, which is exactly the point. <laughs> There's a lot more that goes into property than just interest rates. And I, uh, the other side of the equation, you know, one of the strongest performing residential markets in the world right now is Turkey. It's up 40% this year. Interest rates are 17%. So it's not about interest rates. It's certainly not about tax laws either because we have negative gearing and we have capital gains tax concession for the share market. You know, you, you can buy shares and you get capital gains tax concession. We don't have the most expensive share market in the world by any stretch of the imagination. So that's a, that's a bit of a nonsense as well. Um, and then thirdly, you know, the immigration debate, well, you know, this, the state of Texas in the United States roughly has the same population as Australia, about 28 million. The state of Texas in the United States has the same population growth, around 1.5% per annum through internal migration. But the house prices in Texas are less than, less than half than what they are in Australia. So it's not an immigration issue either. So what it is, it's, it's all about the cost of production. It's all about the cost to build. Um, and the problem we've had in Australia is that we've had all levels of government, local, state, federal, all with their hands in the pocket of 
the residential developer. The developer, particularly the developer, the land developer and the home builder, right out on the fringes, you know, that first home buyer market, which is typically on the fridge, suburban fridges of our cities. You know, when you have governments that come in and they 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 lock in huge charges, whether it's stamp duty or infrastructure levies or GST on bills, Section 96 levies, um, you know, other costs, you know, the developers aren't stupid. They'll, they'll just bake those costs straight into the cost to build. And and if it just if it means it costs seven eight hundred thousand dollars to get a house out of the ground, um, out in those sort of fringe suburbs, they're not going to build until house prices get to that level or higher. They just won't. The economics just doesn't support it. So and then as soon as you start having you know the most um, the cheapest, if you like, the most affordable house at seven hundred thousand dollars, eight hundred thousand dollars, or whatever it is to cost to build, everything gets priced relative to that. So if you if people are willing to pay $700,000, you know, out towards, you know, the Campbelltown area in Sydney, um, then how much are they willing to pay for, you know, somewhere closer in, like, you know, around St George or Hurstville or, you know, Ryde, and how much are they going to pay to be closer in, say, if you start getting in towards Balmain? Or, and you, the relative pricing moves all the way up to Jamie Packer's house. So, but it all starts at that initial cost to build. And what's happened over the last really 30 years, we've had this user pays mentality where it comes to infrastructure where um, governments say, well, we're not going to give free infrastructure anymore to these expanding suburbs. We're going to have to bake it into the land price. And, um, and so that's all just increased the cost of production. That's the issue. You know, that's the issue. As I, I, used, to have, um, I used to have these Americans, after the GFC, these Americans used to show up when I was a banker at Credit Suisse, and they used to say, you know what, you guys have got the greatest property bubble ever. You know, it was 2009, 2010, and they'd just been through the worst crash ever. So they looked at our market and thought it was insane. And they said, you know, your house price here is like, it costs you $800,000 to buy a house in Sydney, and they're only $300,000, you know, in, in Texas. You know, you guys have got a massive bubble. To which I just responded, well, how much does a packet of cigarettes cost in Texas? I knew the answer because <laughs> I used to be a smoker. A packet of cigarettes in Texas cost, you know, $4.50. A pack of cigarettes in Sydney cost around $25, $30. Bucks. And I just said, well, do we have a cigarette bubble? The analogy is the same. The government deliberately imposes taxes on cigarettes to make them unaffordable. What they've done to the housing market is exactly the same. Except, of course, we should dissuade people from smoking. That makes sense. But governments are trying to fill their coffers. They're trying to fill their coffers, you know, with taxes. They're trying to and, – and what who they're really benefiting are existing house owners. You know, if you bought your house in the 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, you bought it without all these charges. But the marginal cost of the new house is so much higher, you've just had this huge drag-along effect. So if the government really wants to do anything about it, they all need to get in around a table and take the charges out. I, th I remember a presentation, I can't remember if it was Stockland or Mervac or one of the home builders, I think it was like 40 in Sydney, 40% of the cost of a new build is tax. So you want to reduce costs in this country by, you want to reduce house prices by 40%. It's a really good place to start. Because as soon as it costs, you know, $300,000 to build, a house instead of you know six hundred thousand dollars, you'll get a supply response like nobody's business. You'll get a lot of supply, <laughs> and prices will fall until it meets the marginal cost of production. 
That's the way to fix it. But no one wants to do it because no one wants to give up the revenue. You've been a pretty vocal uh, kind of proponent of office property over the last couple of years. Um, you know, despite the persistent trend of working from home, could you explain some of the key reasons that you think people are estimating or overestimating, I should say, the impact of work from home? Yeah, sure. I mean, we we we, we haven't known office for a long, long time. And then when the pandemic came, you know, office got hit pretty pretty hard as you'd expect because of this whole work from home theme. And so they started showing up on our radar as something really interesting. But we had to satisfy ourselves that this the work from home issue was was not going to be a permanent sort of damage to the value of office assets. And so we did a lot of thinking about this and we spoke to a number of office managers and the like. And no, we 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 think that there is a little bit of um you know panic associated with the work from home and the impact on office values and you know I listen to a lot of podcasts as well and you know listen to a lot of economists and you know business leaders and whatnot and the narrative seems to be it seems to go something like this it's it's Google has told their employees that they can now work from home two days a week so the maths is two days out of five equals 40 percent that's a 40% reduction in demand, you know, that's devastating for office, right? That seems to be the narrative. But when you work through the maths, it's nowhere near that bad because if you're an office manager and you're being told to provide enough office accommodation to suit your workforce, when on average, you know, two people are going to be working from home, you know, uh, sorry, one person's going to be working from home two days a week, it, that's not a 40% reduction in demand. It's it's almost a zero percent reduction in office demand and the reason being is when you're providing for office accommodation you're not providing for the average number of people to come in you're providing for the maximum amount of people to come in so you might just say to your employees well you can work from home two days a week first of all not every employee wants to work from home so that's first of all it's not going to be everyone that's going to be doing it secondly if you give everyone the option to work two days from home a week, there's a very good chance, and we're seeing this in some of the data already, there's a very good chance you're going to work from home Monday and Friday um, for various reasons, which means everyone or almost everyone's going to be in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So you can't reduce your space by 40% because you're going to have a problem Tuesday morning. <laughs> so... Um, now, the way around that, of course, is you say to everyone, well, you can work from two days from home a week, but we've got to roster it. So, John, you do Mondays, Kate, you do Tuesdays, Peter, you do Wednesdays. Now, that might be the case, but that doesn't sound like flexible work hours to me. It's, it seems to be flying directly in the face of the whole concept. So, you know, the work from home, I think the work from home environment is here to stay. You know, I, I don't think that not everyone's going to come back in, but there are a number of people who genuinely want to work in the office. They want that separation from work from home. Um, but, you know, telling employees that they can work from home two days a week, it's unlikely to have much of an impact on office space at all. Now, it's interesting right now because tenants are very vocally saying we are reducing our office demands from work from home. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm pretty sure they haven't thought about this to the same extent 
it seems like a pretty, it seems like a classic CEO sort of decision, like forty percent reduction in people working. We'll just reduce our space by forty percent. So it's going to be an interesting releasing market in two to three years' time when everyone comes into the office Tuesday morning and <laughs> no one's got anywhere to sit. So you know we're, we're constructive on office. We we think it's 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 definitely an asset class that's here to stay, and you know you might have to be patient. Um, you know, it's going to take a while before everyone sort of sorts themselves out. You have to ride through the sentiment. The sentiment at the moment is terrible for office. That's good. That's usually a good buy signal. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting asset class, and I think the work from home is not going to be as bad as people think. Over the last kind of month or two in particular, but probably goes back a little bit further than that, um, equity markets have been largely driven by the rising interest rate story. Um, you know, obviously inflation is quite high in the US and elsewhere. Um, and the expectation is that central banks are going to start reducing their balance sheets and increasing interest rates. Has the effect on REITs been as significant as what we've seen in the equity markets? Oh, in the short term, absolutely. So there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that goes on when it comes to central bank actions and equity markets. So the equity market has fooled itself into thinking that the central bank actually has any sort of impact on share markets. <laughs> um, and the reality is that they don't. Um, the central banks, you know, with the signalling of interest rates and quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, really have very little impact on you know medium to long term share market performance. So if you look at if you look at the United States, right, between 2010 and 2020, um, the central bank was very active, as you know, you know, post GFC, they were expanding the balance sheet, then they started, then they ended quantitative easing. Well, they had three versions of QE. Mm. Then they started raising interest rates. And then towards the back end of 2020, started reducing interest rates. The total return to US share market for those 10 years is 100% explained by the dividend yield of stocks and the earnings growth of stocks. Had nothing to do with PE re-rates or D-rates or anything anything of that matter. You know, the data is there for anyone who wants to, who wants, you know, is willing to look at it. And the reason being is central bank activity just, it, it, there's, there's no transmission mechanism to the equity market. Central banks when they when they do quantitative easing, they buy very very high quality assets from the from the market, say government bonds, or sometimes AAA rated private debt, and they swap those assets for just cash, and and that's it. <laughs> like, and so the sellers of those bonds, the sellers of those of those very very low risk low returning assets, it's just not in their nature to go and say, well, I used to own this low-risk bond, now I'm going to punt Tesla shares. It just doesn't, it just <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And, when, and if the banks sell those bonds, you know, banks just get exchange settlement balances, what we call exchange settlement balances here in Australia, and banks can't spend exchange settlement balances. They are there to just clear transactions on behalf of customers. Now, all of this sounds very technical, I know, but most of the narrative is, Central banks are pumping the market full of liquidity and that liquidity is driving share markets. How many times have you heard that? Has anyone just sat down and asked a commentator who has said that, what liquidity are you talking about? How is it actually going from a central bank spreadsheet into buying a stock like Microsoft? 
Take me through those steps. And I'll bet you no one can say it because there are no steps. So <laughs> the data is really clear. Between 2010, 2020, 100% of total share market returns were dividend yield and earnings growth because the transmission mechanism out of central banks, it's, it's, it's almost like a placebo. So in the very short term, central bank does X, everyone reacts. Central bank does Y, everyone reacts. But at the end of the day, once the dust settles, you know, it all comes down to how much a company's earning <laughs> and what's the risk appetite of the marginal investor. And that's what drives the share market over time. And, you know, is the company paying dividends and that's part of my total return. And, and, and that's pretty much what happens. Do you have, are you able to share any of the data that you're referring to there? It would be great to insert in the, um, in the description for the podcast and share it with the audience if we can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting perspective, though. It's not one that I've actually heard before. Um, you, you're right in that I, I really have never heard somebody question it. It does seem to be just such an accepted narrative that nobody even wonders whether it might be wrong. So I'll be very curious to, to see some of that data and we can, uh, we can share that with the audience. Um, if you're listening now and you'd like to get a copy of some of the data that Chris is referring to, just jump on livewiremarkets.com um, and navigate to the wire for this podcast and I'll ensure that it's shared in there. At the end of last year, you were writing on the topic of the boom in US household savings. Um, you wrote, and I'll, I'll quote here, uh, not many readers are fully equipped to understand the macroeconomic ramifications of such an incredible sea change in policy and household financial health. That's a pretty big statement, and it's not really a topic that I'm hearing many people focus on. Could you explain what you are actually talking about there? Sure. So um, when you look, the framework we use to think about government policy when it comes to um, the market and the economy we like to use what's called the sectorial balances, which, again, probably not many of your listeners may have heard of, but it's something that you get taught first, second year uni, and then they skim over it. But it's a really powerful tool. And what the sectoral balances says is, in a really simple term, someone's, someone's spending is someone else's income. Someone's deficit is someone else's surplus. Every time you make a transaction, you know, your, your savings that were sitting in your pocket goes to someone else in the form of income. And if they don't spend it, it turns into their savings. And if they do spend it, then it goes to someone else's savings. So everything adds up to zero. And so the sectorial balances um, takes that concept, if you like, and breaks it into four components of the economy, government, households, businesses, domestic businesses, and external investors, so foreign investors. And all of those add up to zero. Everyone's financial savings add up to zero to the cent, right, to the cent. And we run this data all the time. Um, you can get the data out of the US and it always adds up to, you know, to zero. And so when COVID hit, the, the, the US federal government, Australian federal government, New Zealand, every, every most economies around the world, most governments had a huge, ran huge deficits to cope with, for various policies, but they ran huge deficits to cope with COVID and the lockdowns. And they showed up in the form of 
non-government savings. Now, the non-government is, as I said before, it's households, foreign, gov- foreign and also businesses. But what they did this time compared to the GFC was they every government seemed to really target households this time around. Yeah, they targeted business. There was some help to businesses, but a lot of it went to households. And so as per the sectorial balances, this huge government deficit just ended up showing up in the bank accounts of households. And it was a huge change in narrative because up until COVID, most governments around the world ran this false thought, this false idea that they had to balance their budgets. And of course, if the government's trying to balance their budget, if the government's trying to you know, run a zero deficit or even a surplus, then someone else has to run a deficit. And unfortunately, in Australia and in the United States and in most parts around the world, that deficit was falling on the shoulders of households. That's why our household debt exploded in this country, you know, between, you know, really when Costello started balancing the budget in the late 90s, right through to, you know, 2018, 2019, if the government's trying to run a balanced budget and the foreign sector is saving, we know that because foreigners like saving in Australian assets, someone has to run a deficit and it was, and it's been households and households been running up big, big, huge amounts of balance sheet debt. We blame that on the housing market, but uh, we've talked about that already. So, but COVID's totally flipped this. Households, for the first time around the world, have huge savings because of COVID. And now they're sort of like, oh, wow, let's go spend. So that's why you're having this incredible, incredible boom in demand. And we have not seen the scale of savings. First of all, the scale of the deficit, I'll talk about the United States quickly, the scale of the deficit in the United States is something we haven't seen since the Second World War, which is why I'm saying no one's really equipped to understand what this actually means, because we haven't seen this recapitalization of household balance. No one, no, maybe Warren Buffett, I don't know, <laughs> no investor alive today has seen that recapitalization um, of household balance sheets. And so it's just really interesting. And, you know, we, 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 we think it's important. Um, and we're keeping a very close eye on it, and, and I guess that's why you know we're, we're making that statement that it's been a huge change of forty years of economic um, ideology. It's we've just totally flipped it on its head. So I don't think anyone's quite prepared to figure out what that means. If you were forced to speculate, what do you, what would be your guesses as to some of the effects that it could have? Uh, right now, it seems the obvious thing seems to us is that the consumer is going to be far stronger than what they were prior to COVID. So in the lead up to COVID, there was a narrative in retail, particularly bricks and mortar retail. There was a narrative that bricks and mortar retail was failing because uh, online commerce was was eating their lunch. And in part, that was true. But in part, also, households were just fall to the gills with debt <laughs> and wages were really low. Uh, wage growth, I should say, was really low. Um, and so a combination of those things just meant households were continually, gradually tightening their belts. And the RBA was trying to help by lowering interest rates all the time. And all that did was encourage more people to take on more debt <laughs> because sectorial balances, the government wasn't providing the financial savings, so they had to get the money somewhere else. And more debt meant the central bank just got cornered to dropping rates again. And so households just got squeezed. Um, And so this recapitalisation of household balance sheets, 
our guess at this stage is it's unleashing a lot of 20, 30 years of pent-up spending habits, which is why we're now getting inflation. Like if Retail sales came out yesterday and everyone's saying, oh, you know, December sales were 3% down on November. Have they looked at the trend? Sales, if you look at total sales trend, it's way above what it was pre-pandemic. Yeah, we're going to get some, you know, some beats and some misses relative to expectations, but the total volume of retail sales is completely off the charts, not just here, but it's happening all around the world. And so our best guess right now is that, you know, it would be foolish to to back against the consumer, you know, whatever that consumer, you know, in the areas of retail or maybe other services, you know, uh, household consumption generally, maybe even bricks and mortar retail. I think that's where that's where I think it's it's really interesting right now. Well, let's drill down into some specifics. You know, looking at your portfolio, obviously you can invest um, throughout the developed world. I believe I don't think you do. Um, any emerging markets, do you? That's correct, yeah. yeah. We, we, we're primarily developed, yeah. So looking around, you know, at the different geographies and sectors that you invest in, what where are you finding the best opportunities at the moment? So it's, it's uh, the way we think about it is we're completely agnostic of the location. Um, we are looking just for the best real estate opportunities wherever they may be in the developed markets, as you say. So... Where we end up geographically is a function of just where we find the opportunities. So it's probably best to talk about which sectors we find the most interesting right now. And, you know, we talked a little bit about retail, but one of the sectors that we really like is um, healthcare. And healthcare is a huge, huge uh, market. It encapsulates hospitals. um, It encapsulates uh, medical office buildings. It encapsulates nursing facilities. Uh, but where we've laid most of our bets and where we think it's the most interesting right now is senior housing. So uh, senior housing in the Northern Hemisphere in particular caters for people who are sort of getting into that stage in life where they need maybe a little bit of help, not too much help. They're still pretty independent, but they might need a little bit of help in terms of maybe some of their meals uh, they may need some sort of medical standby personnel um, on on site, a nurse or two, um, and that usually cuts in when you turn around eighty years of age. That's sort of that's sort of what happens. Certainly in North America, that seems to be the case. Now, if you think about the baby booming generation, the first of the baby boomers was born in nineteen forty five, which means they turn eighty pretty soon. The first of the boomers turn eighty in two thousand and twenty five. And so that big sort of um, sort of demographic bubble, if you will, is coming down. Is coming down the pike. We're only three years away from it now. And once that hits, once that grey tsunami hits in 2025, this is a 20-year theme that's 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 going to play out. So that's the demand side. But what really gets us excited is the supply side. Because this particular sector got ravaged by COVID because they housed the most vulnerable. And and so, you know, the share prices of these companies have been absolutely clobbered. And as a result, people have just stopped building this stuff because the, the maths just doesn't work. So as soon as assets start trading below the cost to build, which a lot of these assets now are because of COVID, 
because these assets are now trading below the cost to build, the supply of new stock has, has really come to a standstill. Leave aside the supply chain issues, which makes it difficult anyway. But the maths just doesn't work to, to build new stock, which is creating the p- perfect storm, really, because it takes three to four years to really, you know, from scratch to build these things. And in three to four years' time, this tsunami's hitting. And 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 like I said, it's a 20-year story, really. And um, the best news out of all of this is you can buy some of these companies well below where they were pre-COVID. You know, I know we've had a big boom in share markets post-COVID and um, there's lots of talk, as usual, of bubbles and whatnot, and that might be true. I'm, I'm not really equipped to define whether a market's generally in a bubble or not, but you, what I can say is you can buy these particular listed real estate companies at below the cost to build at a time where we need to build them because demand is about to come through. And so the pricing power of these companies is going to go through the roof. You might have to wait two to three years. I, I, I hate to disappoint some of your listeners. You know, I'm not, I'm not one to say, you know, you need to buy this because it's going to do really well over the next six months. I've got no idea, quite frankly. But sometime between now and the next two to three years, the pricing power is going to shift very strongly towards these companies and uh, and their returns are going to be very, very strong. So that's that's something that, you know, one of the little jewels out of the ashes of COVID that we've found and we're really quite excited about that space. Yeah, we prefer a longer-term view around here. Don't worry, we're, we're not big into, into trading. <laughs> um, oh, good, because <laughs> I'm hopeless at it. <laughs> Are there any specific um, REITs that you're able to mention at all by name? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I suppose one of the ones that's really interesting is one in Canada. Um, it's called Chartwell. It's the largest. It's the largest um, owner of retirement homes in Canada. Canada is a bit interesting because the demographic wave's just a little bit older than the US. The median age of a Canadian is about forty-two, and the median age of an American is about thirty-seven. So it's a bit further along, but the same dynamics I just mentioned. Um, it's, as I said, it's the largest owner of senior housing in, in Canada. It's a lot harder to build in Canada versus the United States, so the supply story is even stronger there. But apart from all of those, apart from all, and, and, and looking through the, the numbers, if you buy that stock today, you know, market cap plus debt, um, you're buying about 20,000, I think it's about 22,000 beds, works out to be around, you're paying about 200,000 Canadian dollars. It might be 220,000 Canadian dollars per bed. And they cost anywhere between 260 to $320,000 a bed to build. So you, at today's share price, you're buying them well below the cost to build, which is why the supply is so constrained. But apart from all of that, it does have another element to it, which we think is a risk as well as an opportunity. So to the south of Canada, that you know, obviously the United States, there's two giant uh, companies, monster companies, you know, eight, nine, ten times bigger than Chartwell. One's called Welltower, the other one's called Ventus, and they're in the same space, and they also have very small Canadian portfolios, and they are on the bid for these assets. They are aggress- They see the same as what we see. They are aggressively buying these senior housing assets. And, you know, there is a sort of a takeover appeal to, to this com- to Chartwell as well because it's it's, it's the leading owner of these assets in Canada. If Welltower or Ventus want to continue their presence in a major way in these markets, uh, it is a really obvious company for them to buy. And they're, 
these companies are already buying. So it's a matter of time. Our biggest risk is, you know, we think the company that we own, Ch- Chartwell, is worth well above where it is today. I think it's 12 Canadian dollars, I think 12, 12 Canadian dollars per share today. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, at replacement cost, it's probably closer to 16, 17 dollars a share. Um, my biggest concern is we get taken out before we get to that level. I mean, it would be good for short-term returns, but um, it does provide us a nice little underwrite. So we feel pretty good about that stock. Well, that's the end of the main part of the interview. Um, But if you've got another five or 10 minutes to hang around, I've got three favourite questions that I like to ask every one (laughs) of my guests. First of all, could you tell us about a book that's been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? What did you like about it? Um, I think the, the, the book that I got the most out of was a book called Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy. And it was a book written back in 2010 by Warren Mosler. And anyone who's interested in macroeconomics, um, I, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's a dead easy read. I think it's about 120 pages. If you go to Warren Mosler's website, you can download it for free. Um, but the reason I found it most interesting was it it introduced me to the world of um, modern monetary theory, which is a sort of this idea that um, has been sort of creeping around investment markets for the last five, six years and become a little bit more high profile, particularly during COVID. Um, yeah, it never really, didn't really teach me anything about covering stocks or stock selection. I hate to disappoint some of your listeners. I'm not going to start talking about, you know, um, you know, uh, the principles of investing by Warren Buffett or anything like that. I think investing is pretty simple. It's, it's really just all about discipline and, and just picking companies that generate growing cash flows. Um, but this book, Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy, really helped me frame the economic world in a very, very sensible and logical way that helped me understand things like the impact of COVID. Um, and the spending of governments and, and how that was going to turn the markets around very, very quickly. Um, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's, it's an excellent, and it's a dead easy book. If you can't read it in an afternoon, you're not trying. It's, but you'll, you'll walk away wanting to know more. So, yeah, it's, it's helped me a lot. Great. It's a new one. We haven't had that one before. So just I'll just repeat that. It was Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy by Warren Mosler. Um, as always, I'll, uh, I'll put a link up in the, uh, wire for this podcast. If people would like to get it, normally I link to Amazon and Goodreads, but given that this one, uh, is for free online, I'll link directly to the book. Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? (laughs) I, um, in, in the 1990s, I was working in a stockbroking firm called HSBC James Cable, and um, and and oil stocks were the were just going crazy back then. Particularly the little, the junior, particularly the junior miners, um, you know, the discoverers. And so I was I was young and I didn't own a house and wasn't married, so which meant I was completely foolish with my money. And so I was just, you know, I was just 
going into all of these junior miners, you know, these little oil, oil explorers. And there was one little story which, um, which I fell in for, which was there was this junior miner. It was off the coast of Venezuela or, you know, somewhere in South America. And they, they didn't, they didn't uh, find oil, but they owned a rig and the rig was worth 50 mil. And the market cap of this company was 20. And so the story was they're going to sell the rig and return cash to shareholders. It all sounded pretty reasonable. So bought into this company, 20 to 50, you know, that's a two-bagger plus a bit. Sounded pretty reasonable. So I bought into it. Nothing much happened. And then the company was uh, had an announcement. It stopped trading. Um, one of the South American governments sort of came in and with the guns and just took the rig and took it for their own. Of course, the company never came back and traded again. Uh, meanwhile, all my other bets in these resource companies was com- were completely blowing up. You know, I, I really just didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, and I've never, I've never invested in a resource stock since. And the biggest takeaway I got from it was stick to your lane. <laughs> you know, it's it's just stick to what you know. And that's the that's the only thing that I I can say to anyone who asks me any sort of advice on investing. Like, it's a massive world out there. There are so many things to invest in. You're good at something or you know something or you know about something. And if you do, get to know it as best as you possibly can and just stick to that. So ever since then, I've just personally invested in real estate and it's actually turned out okay for me. I'm not saying don't invest in the junior miners. There's probably people who really know what they're doing out there, but they've probably got a degree in geology or something. They know what they're doing. I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Stick with what you know is pretty good advice, I reckon. One definitely fits fits everyone. Um, I have one more question, but before I ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting to anybody that they go out there, stick all of their money in a single asset and forget about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, If markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in, I'm going to say one asset, because I know companies, uh, not not really your favorite area. So if you could only own shares in one asset, what would it be? Well, a listed company, I guess, is what you're talking about. So I like to leave this pretty open to interpretation. Um, I'm happy with whatever, you, however you like to to interpret the question. If you want to go outside yeah. listed companies, that's fine. Yeah, I look in terms of the way we think about investing. Everything we buy, we always ask ourselves that same question: like, assume you're not allowed to touch it for five years, no matter what. We always think about it that way because we, as I said before, we we can't trade. We're not, we can't out-trade Wall Street. We're just not, we're not going to out-guess anyone's earnings. So it's a hard one for me because everything that we end up buying, we have that sort of framework around it. But um, I, I think the most sensible thing that people can do um, on a five-year view is, um, you know, just, you know, lock down their principal place of residence. You know, that's, it, it's, I know it's boring, but... It's quite frankly, it is the best tax-free return you're ever going to get. In this country, it doesn't get taxed. Um, you can add value to it anytime you want. You know whether it's 
putting in a new kitchen or painting a wall or even hanging up a painting. You can, you can add value to it or you can do the big DA if you want. No CEO is ever going to come along and do a rights issue on you uh, that you're forced to participate in. Um, uh, you know, and you, and one of the best things about it is it doesn't get marked to market every day. You know, that's the, that's the worst part of shares that they get marked to market all the time. And, um, and that creates ill discipline. The fact that houses don't get marked to market creates an enormous amount of discipline for people. And not everyone has the discipline to invest. And this is the best way to do it. And, you know, anyone that's bought a house in this country for the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, assuming they put moderate leverage on 50, 60%, my guess is they've outperformed every fund manager in this country by a substantial margin. And they've done it without having to pay all the fees, costs and charges and, and whatnot. Yeah, you have to pay stamp duty, but I'm, I'm sort of talking bad about my industry at the moment. I you know, probably should stop talking, but I, I genuinely believe that has got to be your priority. If Get that done first and foremost and secure that doesn't have to be the best house or whatever, but as I said, it's we were talking about before high, high house prices. I don't see any move in government policy at all to reduce the cost to build in this country. I don't see that happening. I, I see the opposite, in fact. They'll probably continue to gouge more and put more costs into the cost to build over time. So um, I don't believe we've, we've got a bubble in this country. You know, I, a lot of people say that whenever they see house prices go up a bit. Um, I think that's probably, you know, the best thing you can do uh, if, if you haven't got that sorted out already. So I just want to, I want to be really clear on this. I'm not talking about an investment property. That gets taxed. Um, if you've got your house in order, okay, then start thinking about other things. But I'm talking about the your principal place of residence because no matter, no matter what you do, you've got to pay rent. You've got to live somewhere. You've got to, you have a, the moment you're born in life, you have a huge off-balance sheet liability. It's called the net present value of your rent. And it's a massive number. So yes, house prices are big, but you have an off-balance sheet liability as well, which is a massive number. It's the net present value of the rent until you die. And you you can you can you can relieve yourself of that liability by buying that principal place of residence. Better to pay off your own mortgage than somebody else's, hey? <laughs> Exactly. And, but, you know, rents go up every year. But once you lock that mortgage in and you can sort of start paying it down, the cost starts reversing, not increasing. And, and that's that's the road to sort of some level of financial stability. Great. Well, Chris, it's been genuinely fascinating to hear your perspective on things. Um, definitely a few non-standard views throughout. Um, thanks for sharing your time with us today and your uh, and your wisdom. It's been terrific, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me.